And I know in the worship guide you have three points there. I'll just go ahead and say we're only going to get to two of those points this morning. So I just want to just kind of preface this part of Genesis because I know um, the, the flood narrative is, is very familiar to a lot of us. Um, we probably come uh, to these three chapters with a lot of, uh, yeah, maybe, not, maybe not a lot, but some presuppositions at least uh, about uh, what we believe the flood to be about, what we believe the message of the flood is. I mean, it's a classic children's story about God making the entire world into a graveyard. So we have that. So this is typically how I, I, I uh, judge the health of children's Bibles. Is, is by the, I, will, I will literally flip it open to the flood narrative. And if it doesn't have dead bodies and carnage strewn about, uh, that particular children's Bible goes in the trash can. Because the story of the flood is not a sweet story about a biblical Dr. Dr. Doolittle who is taking with his family all the animals onto the ark and they're going to have this cute, cuddly time as God brings destruction and death to the world, the entire world. So what we are witnessing rather than that is this devastation this devastation that sin brings to everything. Every part of creation is touched by sin. This is, this is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 23, it's how he describes how we kind of feel about this brokenness. He says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves. So, so you have the trees and the animals and everything that God created is groaning under the brokenness that sin has brought into the world. And then he says, not only that, we too groan. We're sick. We hurt. We mourn. We're sad. All of those are groanings of the brokenness that sin has brought into our world. But we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. So what Paul says is, yes, we groan. We will groan. But we do not groan without hope. We don't watch as creation around us kind of dwindles away, we don't watch that hopelessly. For example, when we see the recent news about uh, the Equality Act being passed and the possible effects that that will have upon not only our, our, our country, but also the church, we don't look at that hopelessly. Andrew Walker of the uh, Ethics and Religious Liberties Commission, he wrote this, just to kind of give us a description of what we're dealing with here. He says, The bill represents the most invasive threat to religious liberty ever proposed in America, given that it touches areas of education, public accommodation, employment, and federal funding. Were it to pass, which he wrote this before it did pass, 
its sweeping effects on religious liberty, free speech, and freedom of conscience would be both historic and also chilling. Even so, even so, we don't despair. Instead, we stand in the bird's nest of this vessel called the church, looking back at the cross, but also looking forward to our final restoration when Jesus returns. And then at the same time, we're pointing others in the exact same direction. So let me read for us. I'm going to read, I'm not going to read the entirety of um, all of uh, this, this narrative. I'm going to read chapter 6, verses 9 through 22 first, and then I'll skip over to chapter 7 and read verses 17 through 24. This is God's word. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it, finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh, and which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind, two of every sort shall come into, in to you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten, and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. And then chapter 7, verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. This is God's word. It's entirely true and it's given to us in love. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We even thank you for the hard words that we see here of just complete and total devastation 
in ways I'm sure that strike us um, as unfair. Why, why, would, why, would, why would a good God do this to a whole race of people? Why would he wipe out all these animals? Why would he just do it all over? Why would he do that? And so we come with those types of questions and those types of doubts and those types of uh, misgivings that we have possibly about the scriptures and we honestly uh, confess those to you, Father. And so we pray that you would use your word to correct our thinking because our thinking is probably wrong. And so God, I pray that you would teach us this morning. Teach us the truth of what you have to show us here from your word. Show us the, the way in which you see the world and give us eyes to see, even in just a small way, the way that you see. And we pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. So a mistake that I think we've made um, in the church today is allowing other measurements to determine our faithfulness. So instead of going to God's word to define faithfulness, we, we like to go to voting trends. Um, we like to go to news outlets. We, we like to go uh, to judge people based on the books they read or the podcasts that you listen to. You even hear it in our language. We can no longer just say, I am a Christian. We have to uh, qualify it. We have to say, I'm an evangelical. Or I'm a conservative. And so you have to put all of that together and say, I'm a conservative evangelical Christian. And then add on top of that, if you like to call yourself Baptist or a Calvinist or Reformed, and you have to have all of these clarifying statements about who you are and about your own faithfulness. Where our problem then becomes, when we turn to the Scriptures, we tend to force them into categories that we already know. So instead of allowing the Word to create these new categories of thinking for you, because what we see in our text today is this continuing emergence of two types of people. That's it. Two types of people. And God calls them the righteous and the wicked. There's no middle ground here. To those who are either faithfully walking in obedience to God's commands or those who are not. Those are our only two options in the Bible. Another mistake I think we make, and I know I make it, and it's really just a theological error. It's actually heresy. <laughs> actually, it's something that I confess that I make with people, especially people that I'm in contact with on a regular basis, uh, men and women that I would call friends, who I would say in my own kind of definition of the word, they are good people, they're kind, they sacrifice on behalf of others, they're generous, they're, they're good husbands and good wives and good dads and good moms, they're good friends. But my delusional error is to tell myself that they're going to be all right. That I don't need to impose this message of the gospel upon them. So what I've done, what I've actually done here, is, is created this third category that is grossly unbiblical. And to, to connect it to what is happening in our text, uh, what I've done is I've created a little lifeboat. A little lifeboat tied to the ark of salvation for my third category of people who are 
good people. Because in reality, these people and those people that you know, and they may even be people really close to you, would have all died in the flood. They would have all been crushed. None of them would have been saved apart from Christ. Because our, apart from trusting in Christ, they and you are without hope. This is how the New Testament categorizes it in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 through 14. Jesus, Jesus' own words. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. We see that in our text today. Those who are uh, marching towards destruction are many. But those who have found this narrow gate are very, very few. So today in our text, I want us to look at this uh, in two parts that I think will help us better understand how it is that God sees the world. And hopefully begins to give us new categories of thinking and how we view the world as well. So the first point is the preparation of the righteous. And the second point is the destruction of the wicked. The preparation of the righteous and the destruction of the wicked. So in the preparation of the righteous uh, against the backdrop of the state of the world at the time of the flood, we, we, be, we get a pretty clear picture of how God calls us to live faithfully in the midst of a sinful generation through Noah's example. Because this is where we find ourselves in our own day right now. This is how Jesus draws, this is why Jesus draws this parallel between the way people were living before the flood and then the way people will live uh, or will be living before the second coming of Jesus, which is where we are right now at this moment in history. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark so will be this, the coming of the Son of Man. <clears throat> Jesus is comparing the, the, the normality of life before the flood, broken all the same, to the normality of life, broken as well, of what is happening right now, before His second coming. People are eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage and just living their daily lives. And this is where we find ourselves. So in verses 11 and 12, the backdrop of corruption is reported in two stages. Or you could say, how God saw it. In verse 11 there of chapter 6, states that the earth, while normal, was corrupt and full of violence. And then verse 12, again, uh, repeating what is said in chapter 6, verse 5, reports that God saw that the earth was corrupt. Which just tells us, if God is seeing this, God is not one who sits idly by. 
God is in is an observation of what is happening to his creation at this point in time. He doesn't, he doesn't remove himself from it. He sees it and he acts. He will not let evil carry on forever. So you have these two words, corrupt and violence, and both of these words give us a, a graphic description of, of humanity at its very worst. Just, just the word corrupted, just to give you an example of how explicit uh, what is happening in this, in, this, in this context, what is happening here, it could also be translated rotted, which is a better word to us because we know what it means for something to rot. We know what that smells like. We know what it looks like. It's gross. We don't want to touch it. It makes us sick to our stomach. So verse 12 would then read, And God saw the earth, and behold, it was rotted. For all flesh had rotted the earth. Well, Psalm Psalm 14, remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. So I was asking the question, well, what does this rottedness look like? I mean, we could run run to all sorts of sins, but but really every sin that we commit fits into this category of, of rottenness. So if, you're, if, you're, if your first instinct is to say, well, that person's sin over there is what rottenness is, then you're wrong because you have rottenness in your own heart as well because of your own sin. So Psalm 14 says this, describes for us what this, what this rotted nature looks like. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt or rotted. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So the main problem the psalmist is saying, which is ultimately the problem of the heart, not what they are doing or not doing, was they lived as if there was no God. And when we sin in our own hearts, we too are living as if there was no God. And this is what leads to corruption in violent ways. And this is what God saw filling the earth. A people who did not acknowledge Him. A people uh, who did not see Him or worship Him. With the exception of one man, Noah. Noah, we're first introduced to um, by his father Lamech in chapter 5, verse 29. And this is what Lamech says about his boy. Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. So bringing back up the, 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 uh, the condemnation that God brings to Adam and Eve. Bringing that back up, so pointing back to the fall. Out of the ground the Lord has cursed. This one, Noah. My boy, my son, shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So Lamech 
like the first parents, Adam and Eve with Cain, had high expectations for his son. Maybe even thinking that Noah Noah was the snake crusher of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Nonetheless, Lamech hoped Noah would be the one to bring relief and comfort to the earth. Because life under the curse, Lamech is confessing, is hard. It hurts. It is painful. God meant every word of that. But it's also painful for God. God is looking on His his good creation and seeing it being corrupted and rotted. So obviously we'll see uh, God does use Noah as part of his plan to bring relief to the world, but it's not in the way that Lamech thought. Noah's life is, is, is not as the second Adam. Noah is not the savior of the world, but a shadow, a shadow of the true and final rest to one day be found in Christ. So Noah's life is actually pointing forward to the snake crusher. He's pointing forward to the fulfillment of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, just in his faithfulness. Now, what we find in Noah is, again, this this clear distinction that we find throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament between the righteous and the wicked. So in chapter 6, verse 8, we first learn that grace finds Noah. And then in verse 9, we get a fuller picture of Noah's uh, spirituality. What what this grace has done in Noah's life. When we are told that he is a righteous and blameless man. And this word righteous is the main word used to describe Noah. That he is righteous. And he's only righteous because of what God is working in him through Christ who is to come. It's the same word that we see in the New Testament here to describe Noah. So we see it again in chapter 7, verse 1, when God says to Noah, I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And so we know Noah to be a recipient of this divine grace because it kept him close to the Lord. That is the only way that Noah could walk with God is if he's received this grace. And so he walked with God and lived a life in obedience toward God. And this is why we see Noah uh, brought up in this great hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. The writer of Hebrews writes this. He says, By faith, when Noah warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear built an ark to save his family. By his faith he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. So this verse here gives us way more clarity to what we're seeing here in Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. Because it shows us that Noah's faithful obedience, uh, through, through Noah's faithful obedience, just how sinful the world was to reject God's message of life. Noah is the only one in his generation that does not reject the message of life from God. Now, Noah's neighbors were not ignorant of this life either. Noah's neighbors knew what a righteous life looked like. 
They knew what was expected of someone who walked with God because they saw it in Noah. And they saw it in the creation. So Noah, through his living, set before a watching world life and death, you could say. And as the church and as individual Christians, this this is still our calling and your calling. That we are we are still called to set before a watching world life and death. And those are the only two options. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. He says, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we, the church, we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So we are either going to be a message of death to death to one group, or a message of life to life to another. And the world, I want to tell you, continues to watch. You are still in their vision, and we are called to live in that gaze. As Francis Schaeffer says, has said that, um, or used to say, that the world has a right to judge Christianity based on what they see, based on how they see the church living their life. They have a right to that. So we still live in the gaze of the world, and the way we, we live, we, we do this is by, by walking faithfully and obediently according to God's word in this generation, just like Noah did. Paul says to speak in Christ. To not only live a life that is pointing others to Christ, but also to speak to others about Christ. The late theologian missionary uh, Leslie Newbigin and if you've never read anything about Leslie Newbigin, I would encourage you to do so. But the, he says this. He puts it this way. He says, Live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. Or you could put it this way. You've probably heard me say this before. Live a life that demands a gospel response. Live a life in, in such a way that people have no other reason but to ask you Why do you do that? Why do you speak like that? Why do you live your life like that? Why do you make those choices? Why do you spend your money that way? Why do you why do you go in uh, to a to a worship service on a Sunday when you could be sleeping in or watching football or doing something else way more productive? Why do you live that way? Why do you care about life? And a lot of times when we live lives in this way, most of the time, it should look like this, it, it's living countercultural. It's doing, almost doing the opposite of what the world is doing currently. It's not easy, as Jesus says. The narrow way is hard. 
and it will always be hard. And no one lived a more countercultural life than Noah. Noah is told to build something that has never been built, to prepare for something that has never happened. And he does it. He obeys. And so Noah's life obviously provokes the question. We don't see it necessarily here in the text, but it had to provoke the questions, why? What are you doing? We don't even know, we don't even know what you're building. This is the biggest thing we've ever seen. And we don't even know what you're talking about, a flood. What, what is that? Why are you living this way? Why are you obeying God in the way that you're obeying Him? It sounds crazy. And the only answer I can imagine Noah is able to give is to say, my dad, my granddad, and my great-granddad, who also, by the way, walked with God and was taken up by God in this crazy way, didn't even die, told me about the promise God made to our first parents in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. How he would send a rescuer for his people. And this same God, who made this promise to us, told me to build this ark because he was going to destroy the earth and everything and everyone in it. And I believe him. I believe that's what he's going to do. I believe that he is going to fulfill this promise to destroy the earth, but ultimately, I believe he's going to fulfill the promise to his people through my family of Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 to bring a Savior into the world who will save His people ultimately from their sins. And so when God says to Noah in chapter 6, verse 13, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through, the, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Noah obeys. Because he believes. And then verse 22 in chapter 7 verse 5 record for us. Noah did this. He did all that the Lord commanded him. Down to the smallest detail. Everything. And he lives. And in contrast we see that those who don't do this as well in the text. Instead of listening to God's word, they ignore it and continue living according to their definition of a flourishing life, which leads to its natural biblical conclusion, the destruction of the wicked. And this second part begins by making clear again this contrast between the righteous and the wicked. Back and forth it goes. And something we, we have to keep before us, lest we, we make the mistake, we walk out of here this morning still making the mistake of creating that third lifeboat category that I spoke about earlier. Verses 1 through 10 begins with making this striking restatement of Noah's righteousness. For I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then verse 4, God repeats the judgment that is to come to those who are not righteous. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. 
And then verses 10 through 24 records for us this catastrophic judgment by God. Now, something that I want to see, want you to see, something that the author does here um, in, in, in this text is, that, is, is the use of the phrase, uh, the breath of life. So he's used it several times already throughout the reading that we, that we read earlier. Um, but he uses it specifically in verses 715 and 722 to, to distinguish between those who are being saved and those who are not. And so this should trigger for you um, this phrase that we saw back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. This pre-fall condition of man. Where God takes man and forms him out of dust and then breathes into his nostrils the breath of life. Because this is how God intended it to be. He intended that his creation be made in his image and filled with his breath, with his life. Well, here in chapter 7, the phrase is used to both show those who enter the ark and those who do not. In verse 15, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. Then verse 22, everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Both have this same breath of life, but one is allowed to keep it and the other is not. So this comparison lets us know that God's gracious redemption is meaningful only when it is held up to the alternative. You're only going to understand the, the rescue that you have in Christ if you can first look at the judgment and death that your sin deserves. That you are way worse than you think. Way worse than you think. But you are, you are way more loved than you ever dared imagine by Christ. Because God will not allow sin to run rampant on this earth. And he will not allow you, a sin in you, to run rampant either. He is either going to save you or he is going to take you. He will judge and it will be final. And then you have verses 22 through 23, just to make everything just kind of finalized. He blotted out every living thing, which that word blotted out simply means, it's like wiping, wiping the inside of a, of a cup or a plate completely clean and then just turning it over because it's done. That's the idea there. He has, he has wiped out every living thing. They were wiped out from the face of the earth. And only Noah was left. So the key detail here again is that sin, your sin and my sin, and the sin of this world will not finally triumph. I don't care who's voting or what laws get passed. It will not finally triumph. But God's commitment to save his people will triumph. This time of judgment that, you, that we see here in, in uh, Genesis chapter 6 through 8 is a time of, is an eschatological event. This, this would be an end of days 
event. A movie would be made about it. Several movies have been made about it, and they're terrible. But this is why Jesus paralleled this passage with the final judgment that is to come in Matthew chapter 24. Because again, at Jesus' second coming, the wicked will be swept away, and only those found in Christ, the righteous, will enter into the new creation. A perfect creation. A return to the garden for your true and final rest. In his book, The, the Fire Next Time, uh, the author James Baldwin, he, he cleverly alludes to Genesis chapter 9.15 here with his title, that, that God says that he is, he is never going to destroy the earth again with water. But there is this hint that God is going to destroy the earth again, or at least judge the earth again, and Baldwin says next time it will be with fire. And I love that play on words there. Baldwin's book is, is, not, is, is not a book on biblical theology by any stretch of the imagination. Come to me and talk to me about it before you decide to pick it up and read. But he's right. It will be the fire next time. Because Christ is coming again. God is going to bring judgment upon the world again. And in his second coming, God will purge his creation finally. Meaning, final, a final purging. There will be no more. And he'll purge all those who are not his. And let me just ask, when he does, where will you be found? Where will you be found on that day? Will you be found outside the ark living out your own idea of flourishing? Or will you be found inside the ark, resting in God's provision of rescue in Christ? Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we are grateful that we can look at these words that are hard to look at even, that just speak of devastation and death and that we can look at them through the lens of your, your own eyes and your heart for the world and be encouraged and be reminded um, that we have our salvation securely held in Christ. That no matter what, this wor- what happens to this world, that those who are found in Jesus are saved. And so, God, I pray that as, as the church of Jesus Christ, as Christ the King Church specifically, that we would be a people that the world watches and not only sees this work of the gospel in us, but also hears it from our lips. So I pray as we leave this place today that we would proclaim this message of the gospel, that we would be bold witnesses in a, a lost and dying generation that needs to hear it. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.